Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. This is my second interview with SR-71 Blackbird pilot, BC Thomas. Uh, it's a long interview. If you manage to get to the end of it, uh, if you're still awake at the end of it, uh, then post a comment, let me know. Um, but in all seriousness, I think this is a fantastic interview. Of the 20 or so that I've already done, I think this uh, interview with BC is my favourite. I hope you enjoy it too. Big thanks to BC, uh, really patient, very gracious with his time. Thank you very much, BC. And part three will be along in a couple of weeks' time. That'll cover the uh, operational missions. This part is about the performance of the airplane and how it flew. Enjoy. Thanks for coming back and uh, joining us again on 10 Century. Good to see you again. Thank you. Um, so we were talking... Uh, and I was reflecting on this in the week that's passed since we last spoke. Uh, we were talking about the flying you were doing at the test pilot school. And I feel a bit bad because we're sort of really skimming over it to, to some degree. Um, but I suppose if you enjoy this experience, uh, we could always go back and, and do another interview at another time about what, what you did at test pilot school. But the that's ultimate fine. objective, of course, was to was to get on to talking about you becoming the all-time high hours SR-71 Blackbird pilot. Um, and the obvious question I therefore have is, how did you get into the Blackbird program? And, you know, how is it you go from being a test pilot back into the operational world again? Well, I was at, uh, I went through the test pilot school in 1973. It's about a year long school. Graduated in uh, December of 73. Uh, then um, I was high enough in the class to get Edward to the, that's the next assignment. So I stayed, stayed at Edwards and uh, then checked out. Um, in the uh, KC-135, the T-30, I was already flying the T-38 and the U-2 aircraft, and uh, flew uh, flight test in those. Um, my friend Pete Hartwick, the guy I talked about earlier, uh, he and I were T T-38 test pilots for the Air Force, and it, it, what I mean by that is that we monitored the uh, T-38 and uh, were looking for any problems. We had one big test in the T-38 that was a flap slab interconnect uh, test, uh, which I can go into if, if, if you want, but it was, uh, it was to create, to fix a problem that, uh, was created because the engineers tried to fix a problem and they, uh, anytime, I mean, this is a hard and fast rule. Anytime that engineering changes something in the aircraft that changes the uh, flight control, uh, characteristics, 
uh, you have to do a flight test. There's no, no question about it. Well, they, they did that in, the, in logistics command. Didn't think it was necessary to do a flight test, put it out in the field, and then sure enough, it failed. And it almost had catastrophic uh, uh, circumstances. But anyway, uh, that and then uh, the uh, U-2, we did systems tests and, and uh, uh, defensive systems, um, laser uh, stuff, which is still classified, I suppose, and um, cameras and film. We actually did, did film. We did one test where we were mapping areas um, that, um, I'm not sure if that's classified or not. I'll skip that. We also photographed marijuana fields. Now it wasn't for the, um, for the sheriff's department. It wasn't for that. It was for, um, for some government agency that was interested in, in the characteristics of marijuana fields. <laughs> And that was at Yuma, and and the, and the government had these fields. I didn't even know that, but they wanted me to fly over it as, as low as I could and end up at uh, sixty thousand feet, which I did. And in the KC one thirty five, um, I have the distinction of being now. This is this as trivial as you can get. The aircraft commander for the first B one refueling. So I was the aircraft commander for the for the tanker. Big deal. We also did icing testing. Uh, with the uh, A-10 and other airplanes. Um, and then the uh, KC-135 was used to refuel any of the Edwards airplanes that, that needed refueling for their tests. And then it used it as a utility airplane to fly supplies here and there and pick up things. So we, we were kind of busy in that. So I was triple triple qualified in, in those three airplanes. And I've had some people ask me, well, how, how can you keep that straight? And then my answer was, of course, when you're in the cockpit, there's no doubt what airplane you're in. I mean, the KC-135, U-2, and, and uh, uh, T-38 are all completely different. So that, that, that's the answer to that. What, what about what about numbers, though? What about uh, operating, operating limitations? Um, because there are lots of numbers you have to remember for, for just a single type, you know, with the, yes. the, the maximum temperature for the engines, you know, fuel flow, all those sorts of things, pressures. It's just, uh, just a matter of memorization. Now, to help you, you've got dials that have, uh, that have limit markings on them, and uh, they are all consistent because it's done by a mil-spec, a military specification. <clears throat> so the maximum EGT, maximum RT, RPM, and all that stuff are all, all marked, although it's nice to know what they are. Um, the subtle limitations are how much time you can have at a particular uh, temperature and so forth. Uh, that, that stuff you have to commit to memory. But I figure if, uh, if a Shakespearean a actor can memorize Hamlet, I can memorize, <laughs> you know, my airplane's limits. And uh, it's a little bit more important that I know what my airplane's limits are than it is for a actor to flub his lines. So just, just memorize. It's not fun. I don't like it, but it's, it, it's um, a means to an end, and the end is, is good. So, so you did, um, you did then get to the SR. What, what prompted that? Well, I, I had a burning desire to fly the airplane. And the, the, the mission was wonderful, and I, I really wanted the mission. And, of course, the airplane was uh, technically the most exotic airplane ever built, as far as I know. Now, that's not, not counting all the fancy electronics in the, in, in the new airplanes, but as far as um, you know, speed and altitude, uh, it's kind of hard to beat. 
I was curious about the Air Force releasing you back into the operational world. Um, is, is there a temptation or a desire, rather, for them once they've trained a test pilot to keep that person in materiel command or uh, systems command, as it was then called? Well, I had I had a very good squadron commander, and uh, he, uh, I talked to him, you know, personally, and told him what I would like to do. And I was at Edwards for three years, so uh, I mean, four well, not count test pilot school, and that was um, it, it. Was the the minimum service that you could give at Edwards before you're you're uh, sent off to somebody else? The other thing is that the Strategic Air Command had had a uh, desire to have a uh, experimental test pilot as part of their, their crew. Um, they put out the call that they wanted one and then uh, wing commanders are friends with other wing commanders and the word gets around. And so um, there were two of us from Edwards that, uh, that applied for the program. What, what did you know about the SR? Um, and, and for the, for those viewers who don't know its history, can you, can you describe where it had come from? at the point at which you arrived in the program? Because it well, obviously I, had, a, had a black a black history, didn't it? It was a CIA aircraft originally, not the well, SR, started, but a... It started off as a single-seat uh, single uh, airplane, the, the A-12, and that was flown by the CIA out of Kadena, uh, uh, looking at uh, primarily North Korea. And then the decision was made by hired people that, it's probably not a good idea for the CIA civilian pilots to fly that in case they're captured. Uh, you know what they do with spies when they capture and, and we, we never like to have the SR-71 called a spy plane. That's, that's not really what it is. It's a military reconnaissance airplane. Uh, the difference, and it's not a subtle difference, it's a real difference, is that we were military men flying a military mission in a military uniform in a marked military airplane. So all of that is military, military. And uh, there are, if you're captured, which was a, certainly a possibility, then um, we're supposed to be treated uh, according to the Geneva Convention. Whereas uh, like Francis Gary Powers, they treated him like dirt when they, when they uh, caught him. And uh, the, especially North Korea was particularly belligerent. And uh, we primarily flew uh, North Korean uh, reconnaissance missions out of Kadena. And uh, they were not very good to the uh, Maiguez people, the, uh, the ship that they, they commandeered and pirated, took in all of their... Uh, and, and then, of course, prisoners like, uh, like us, uh, like reconnaissance, are always pawns. They always, to, to get us back, which the United... I, I'm firmly convinced the United States really wanted to, if we were captured, would do everything to get us back. But there would always be some something that the, the United States would have to give, and that's not good either. So um, it, it's best to do, uh, if you're going to do reconnaissance, to do it with military people. So, so what did you know about it then, uh, at the point at which you were at Edwards and, and you were applying for it? Did you know all this history? You know, the first time I saw the Blackbird type was when I was in graduate school. I was in graduate school and uh, SMU in Dallas. And it, the Carswell Air Force Base was in Fort Worth. And uh, the, they had an air show in 1966 where they had the first time the uh, Blackbird, was, which was a wife, 12, was on display for the public for the first time. And they also had the XB-70, 
there. He also had a U-2 and RB-57F and all the airplanes. I, mean, I was just like a candy store. I was just a dog. I was a second lieutenant, so I put on my Air Force uniform and went to uh, Parsville and uh, was just uh, just uh, loved that air show and, and got to look into the cockpit of the YF-12. They had a lieutenant colonel sitting in the cockpit and they had a lot of the gauges uh, covered with cardboard. But uh, I could see, you know, it had a stick and I could see what the flight fight uh, instruments look like and the plan form of the airplane and walk around it and uh, you know I of course at the time I, I had flunked my uh, test to be a pilot my eye test and so the thought of ever flying that type of airplane was certainly in, in, in <laughs> it was in my mind but I, I didn't think it'd be possible so that that's the first time I saw it and and then of course I did some research as much as I could on it and found out that it was the fastest airplane in the world and I was flying and had a mission of, uh, of what I thought at the time was spying, but it was reconnaissance. And so all of that appealed to me, all of it. The, the, the mission was wonderful. And um, some say, and I, I, let me um, soften that a little bit, but some say that uh, the closest you can get to combat in peacetime is flying reconnaissance because you're flying either over a country or in the very near vicinity of a country that doesn't want you there and would, would love dearly to uh, shoot down the airplane or capture it. Anyway, um, the, uh, I, I, the reason I say that is I would never say to a combat pilot, fighter pilot especially, hey, I fly combat too because I'm a reconnaissance pilot. That's That's not... That would not be good. <laughs> so anyway, they, they, the mission appealed to me. And uh, I'm a pretty, pretty patriotic guy. I, I don't, there's not too many people I hate, but I hate communist dictators and I hate communism. And the Cold War was, uh, was getting pretty hot, especially with Vietnam. And I just thought anything I could do to, to help out would be great and fly the fastest and highest flying airplane in the world is pretty neat too. So I, I was attracted to everything about it. And then when I got there, you were talking about the, the culture. The culture was, was wonderful, very, very supportive, but very, um, very truthful. We all told the truth to each other and we didn't mind talking about each other and, and, and ourselves, especially say if we made a mistake and everything. It was it, it was just a great group. Going back to the the air show at Carswell, um, I'm really surprised to hear that 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 you had been allowed to sit in it and get really that that close to it. I mean, I, uh, you know, having having said that, that some instruments were covered by cardboard, that sort of makes sense. Um, but did you notice anything about the um, construction of the aeroplane? Uh, were you able at that point? You know, you had a sort of an engineering type background in terms of academic um were you looking at the airplane and thinking about the way it was constructed was there anything that jumped out at you as being particularly interesting well the uh, the spikes out of the inlet were certainly uh, certainly novel i've never seen that before certainly looked uh, furistic is that a good word it, it looked like it it was something that was in the future and the black paint and, and all that it was just it was very appealing Certainly different from any other airplane. Did, did you notice the, the sort of triangular wedges on, on the leading edges and the, and the chine? I didn't, was that, I didn't uh, notice okay. that, no. Okay. We'll, we'll get to that. 
for anybody who's, who doesn't know what they are, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. So can you, um, you know, having explained there was an A-12, which was the CIA aircraft, and then there was a YF-12, and then there was an SR-71, can you, can you describe the differences, what the evolution of the aeroplane was, um, and, and, and how it was different from what the CIA, CIA had initially operated? Well, the uh, A-12 was uh, shorter, lighter, they say it could go faster, but the speed limit was the same on the, that as, as the SR-71. The speed limit was a, was a heat limit, not, not a power limit. And um, they say it was a single-person airplane, which, which uh, really made the workload um, very difficult. And that's, that's another reason why they, they didn't use the A-12, was because it, the workload in that airplane it's it's pretty heavy for just a pilot to do pilot things, much less run the navigation, talk on the radio, defensive systems, radar, uh, and all the cameras. It's just that that task is is daunting. So the guys who did it were really really busy. So that was the A twelve. The F uh, the YF twelve was the uh, fighter version of the SR-71. It actually shot a missile at Mach 3. There's a, there's a video of it. And so it, uh, Kelly Johnson, who's the designer of the airplane, wanted to use it as a nuclear bomber, which it, it could have been. It, it, it probably would have made, it, made a nice one. Um, but the idea of having it as an interceptor, uh, the concept of the threat being a high-speed, high-altitude threat just wasn't the case because the, the frontline bomber was a was the bear for the Soviet Union. And the bear is a, is a turboprop. Yeah. Right. So it, it's a little bit, <laughs> you don't really need a high-speed, high-altitude interceptor for that. Um, let's see. That the, oh, also, the idea of standing alert. Standing alert for an airplane like that is not very practical because the you'd have to do maintenance on it continually. Mm-hmm. Uh replenish the uh, the uh, liquid nitrogen and the tab and all that all that stuff would dissipate and uh, having the crew in a pressure suit the whole time you know for a week or three days or something is a little bit much to ask for so it just wasn't wasn't practical as a it's an interceptor and then at some point then they said well let's use it for its original intended purpose which is reconnaissance and and from yes. that decision the sr-71 came <laughs> And it was very well suited for that with, with with two people. So so what was the process of getting into the program? Um, interviews, flying tests, what did it look like? Well, the, as I talked to my wing commander, my wing commander recommended, my wing commander, my squadron commander, and um, he recommended me, and there's an elaborate process of filling out an application. You have to get all your medical and flying records together and recommendations from your uh, immediate uh, supervisor, your squadron commander, whoever you can get a recommendation from, and send all that into Beale. And uh, then there's a board of officers. Uh, the, first of all, the wing commander has, has uh, the sole last word on who, who uh, is interviewed. But there's a board of officers, and I've been on it before, and it, uh, they, they talk about all of the applicants that are in. There are many more applicants than there are slots. So they send it around the table. Everybody looks at it and then uh, give recommendations to the wing commander. And then sometime later, the wing commander comes back and says, well, we're going to interview these people. It was kind of like the interview for the uh, test pilot school. They, 
they don't interview someone unless they think they could hire them. It's not, it's not an interview process to see if you're okay. It's, they think you're okay by the records and by the recommendations, uh, the check ride uh, records and so forth. And then uh, bring it in for say, uh, it's, almost, it's a week long interview. Get there on Monday and I think you're through by Friday. Two days of it is uh, going down to um, either Brooks or to uh, Travis Air Force Base to a hospital and get all sorts of tests, kind of like an astronaut physical. Uh, I can tell you one funny thing about that is uh, the treadmill. They first did a, a brain scan on me. And the, way, the brain scan is not suction cups, but actually pins they put in my, in my skull which hurt. He didn't like that. So then I did that. And then they come, oh gosh, we made a mistake and we got to do that again. So they put more pins in me and I'm very saying, oh, okay. And then the next thing they had me do was uh, a treadmill. So I'm up on the treadmill and they, they, they run you to exhaustion. They want to see how far you can go. So ta, 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 ta. And the guy said, oh, come on, more, more, more. You know, and well, then pretty soon I start sweating and, it and then blood starts coming down my face. <laughs> And that was that was hilarious. They stopped the thing and said, "What the hell's going on?" <laughs> so, well, I, I knew what was going on, but that was just that was a funny thing that happened. So they do all these tests and everything, and uh, then if you pass that, then um, you have a uh, uh, I forgot how many flights. It was either three or four flights, and the T thirty eight was a SR seventy one instructor pilot in the T thirty eight. Well, they, I, I was an IP in the, in the 38 from Edwards, so I was already an instructor pilot, so they put me in the back seat. <laughs> and then, so I, I had to fly my evaluation to the back seat, which was instruments and uh, aerobatics and formation, uh, simulating air refueling and things like that. And then for the landing pattern, they said, well, we're going to show you what it's like to, to land the SR-71. So you're going to do a no flap in a T-38 from the back seat with your seat lowered. <laughs> I can't see the runway. You know? <laughs> well, you, you look out the side. And that's that's kind of what it's like. It's, it's a little worse than it's like in the back seat of the B model of the SR-71. Because you can't, once you roll down on final, you can't see the runway. But you can see where the runway isn't. And that's sufficient enough to, to go down to it. <laughs> And then the flare is done by sneaking out peaks left and right to where the, you know the, the 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 earth comes up like this. And well, yeah, but about there is when you want to start flaring. <laughs> it was fun. I enjoyed it. <laughs> what, what about culturally? Then I mean, you, you mentioned that just a minute ago. Um, and and you know, my last interview was with Huggy Huggins on the YouTube program, and I know I know you watched that too. And you know, there's obviously a that that uh, community has a strong culture too what oh yes was, yes that was very evident and i really liked that interview i learned a lot from it that's good thanks pc um yeah. what, what, what was so what was your your first impressions or what were your first impressions of, of the sr community then oh i told you i last time the you know, remember it but my sponsor tom allison tom allison and i are exactly the same age one one day apart i didn't know at the time but he was a old f4 pilot and uh, he'd been in Vietnam, and uh, he was, I wouldn't say a crusty guy, but he was a, a no-nonsense guy. I mean, 100% no-nonsense. He, he'd have fun, but when he had fun, he had fun. But, I mean, when you're talking SRs and programs and, and uh, check rides or something like that, 
I never saw him crack a smile. <laughs> so anyway, he's my sponsor. I never met him before. I uh, talked to him on the telephone. I said, uh, uh, hey, uh, Tom, when can I fly that airplane? And he said, uh, literally, word for word is, look, pal, you'll fly that airplane when you're ready. And that gave me a hint as to what the culture is going to be like. <laughs> I'm a new guy, and uh, I just better do what I'm told and study hard and uh and all that stuff, and things will work out. And, uh, anyway, the the culture after that part of the evaluation for the uh, to enter the SR seventy one was to meet everybody. So uh, now we have we had two debts at the time. Well, no, we had one debt, uh, Okinawa, and that had three crews. So there were about ten crews total. So there were at most seven crews at Beale when I was there. And of course, if there's somebody on the, on leave or something. But anyway, I, I got to meet you know, ten to fourteen people, of the crew members, and the DO and the squadron commander and the wing commander. Um, they all interviewed me. Uh, and anyway, the, the they were they were very supportive. They were very nice. They, of course, they wouldn't tell me anything about the operational missions, nor did I ask. And uh, they they just uh, any they answered any question I had. You know, so. The, mainly about what do I do next. And uh, and I couldn't act like I was accepted because I wasn't accepted until I left and they all talked about it. Uh, the The last night was uh, scheduled to be at the bar. It was on Friday night, remember? And everybody, traditionally, everyone comes to the, to the bar for happy hour on Friday night. Not to get drunk, but just to socialize. So I was there, and uh, the, the, I was talking to the wing commander, and in comes Joe Kennego. And Joe Kennego was just uh, was was flying that evening, and he just landed, and uh, and he came in. And Joe is a very jovial guy and uh, funny. And the wing commander said, "Well, how'd it go, Joe?" And his answer was, "It was hell out there, sir, but I got my fuel." <laughs> that was that was a classic remark. So he first told me, "It's hell out there." <laughs> I mean, maybe he's saying it in a, in a funny way, but you know, he meant that he's he's fighting. And um, I got my fuel to show how important getting your fuel is. Yeah, and he knew exactly, and I I figured out what he meant by that. But it was just a a, a remark that that said a lot in that in the way he said it. But anyway, everybody was nice and. Uh, and everything, and so then, of course, I was accepted after that. I got a call about two weeks later, which uh, you know thrilled me beyond beyond belief. Uh, the uh, leaving Edwards, it's not that they had a, a overage of test pilots, but um, they had enough. Is is there any, um, or was there any special security clearances you had to go through to get into the program? Uh, top secret clearance. You had to have that. Did you already I have that? My, oh, yeah. yeah. At Beale, yeah. I mean, at, uh, at Edwards. I think it was at Edwards when I got the top secret. I didn't need that for the RB57. And it was, um, it was a, it had a program name, didn't it? It was, it was Senior Crown? Senior Crown, right. Okay. Uh, so was that a, a special access program? Or? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, just having a top secret clearance does not mean that you can read anything that's top secret. Uh, there are programs within top secret. And so uh, you always have to ask. And, and if you ask a military man, if he's 
cleared and he and he lies to you, then you, you can go 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 to Leavenworth. That's that's really a bad thing. So you always ask, are you senior crown cleared? And he says yes, and you can verify and have some business. I can tell you a funny story about that. <laughs> you heard. Okay, there was one time at Beale that um, I, I I forgot what year it was, but. Um, a man by the name of Frank Gaffney uh, visited Beale, and he came kind of unannounced. He was with the Speaker of the House, I think, and they, they were came to Beale to see the SR-71. Well, uh, I had never heard of him. He was an assistant to something in the, uh, in the Defense Department. But I, I got a call from the Wing Commander, and he said, uh, we have this VIP uh, from Washington, who is, and he gave me his title, and I forgot what it was, but it had something to do with the Department of Defense, who, who uh, wants to see the airplane. But normally, if someone wants to see the airplane, it's, it's done formally. And uh, the person who was the escort officer, in this case me, knows about it ahead of time. Uh, well, they, we had just finished a security check that, uh, that some, some of the crew members uh, didn't do well. What what the security check is is they they bring on the OSI and uh, other people to monitor our telephones, all of the telephones. And uh, if you said if you tried to talk around classified information, that's a big no no. And so there were a couple of incidents where um, a crew member would say um, so, so some of our takeoffs were were classified. What the times that we would take off. Uh, the crew member, I didn't remember, the crew member said, uh, come out to uh, intersection of so-and-so at, uh, you know, 8.30 tonight, and you'll see you'll see something nice. Well, that's the way he, he described the, he was going to take off in the SR-71. Well, they uh, they hit us hard for that. And so we had just finished that, and uh, they gave us warnings, you know, but, and, and, and rightfully so. They, they, they did that every once in a while. So I was kind of keyed up for making sure that I don't do anything wrong. So I, I heard what the wing commander said, and I thought, and, and okay. So then I came out to where I was going to meet him, which is the hangar. The, the, there's a, the hangars were all uh, guarded, and there was one entry. It's funny the way they do it. They have a, a red stripe, and then they have a break in the red stripe, and that's the only way that you can come into the hangar. If you come in any other way, they'll put you on the ground. I mean, right now, you just come right down. I, I never made that mistake, but some of my crew members did. <laughs> so, so I was standing at the at the gap there, and the staff car comes up, and this guy gets out, and he looks like he's 17 years old. He's got a beard. He's got long hair. This is right after the hippie era. And I immediately say to myself, I'm being set up. <laughs> this is a test to see whether I'm going to, to uh, tell him anything. So he came up there, and I met him, and um, and shook hands, and everything, and and then I was I was I was not a very good uh, escort officer, and then I didn't tell him anything. He wanted to see the cockpit, and I no, no, sir, that's not not allowed. I asked him first, "Were you senior crown?" He said, "Yes." Okay, well, at least he passed one thing, and. But uh, as it turns out, he was, in fact, a legitimate guy. And uh, he's, uh, he's a very famous uh, guy now, at least in the U.S., uh, in the conservative uh, world. Um, 
you can Dean see him on Frank Gaffney. Frank G-A-F-F-N-E-Y, Gaffney. yeah. Okay. All right. he, he has some videos out. Anyway, he uh, doesn't look anything now like he did then, but I mean, it was so funny. So I have never seen him. I've never talked to him since then, but uh, when I do, I'm going to apologize for being such a lousy tour guide for him. I'm sorry, sir. But <laughs> you sure did look funny. <laughs> It's it's been mentioned twice now. So um, the cockpit of the aeroplane. Um, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask instead of assuming. Well, why was it secret? Why could people not see? Well, it had limits marked on it, and the inlet the controls. We had uh, two sets of of uh, bypass doors, aft and forward, and then the spike and all that. And all that stuff was written on there. And so. Um, the altitude was not marked as it was on the TDI. Uh, I don't know, just in general. And so certainly the back seat was the, the sensor operator and the uh, and the nav system. The nav system was pretty exotic. And uh, so anyway, they just said it's classified. Operating an airplane where almost everything about it is, is secret. Um, you've just described that you shouldn't talk about secret things in uh, you know in, in in sort of over the telephone or in open areas or whatever. You can't um, talk around that? secret thing. You know, you say something secret, that's that's Leavenworth. That's a definite no no. So okay, oh, so yes. you can't can't talk around it. So so how do you how does that impose or does that impose any limitations on the ease in which you operated the aeroplane? I mean, do you always have to go into a vault to have a conversation? Um were there any sort of briefings that you could do that didn't involve that? Um was it was it a hindrance in any way? No, um, we would do our mission planning in the vault, yes, because we'd have maps and stuff out. But um, the mission planning was was more elaborate than the, the than the um, pre-flight uh, stuff that we would go through before we flew, the the day of the flight. So we would have our mission materials out on the table in the uh, physiological support division office where we were, and that that's okay because that's there's no one around there who's who's going to be looking at us. No, it didn't really. All, all of our briefings were done uh, in a in a secure location, uh, the debrief and everything. No, it, the, whole, the whole base was, I mean, you just couldn't wander around that base uh, as a civilian or uh, or I couldn't now. No, no military person outside the area could come in there. It, it was all guarded. Even the T-38 line was guarded with the red thing. Which I thought was a little overkill, but that's okay. <laughs> it, it certainly kept our airplane safe. You said in the last interview that the uh, the airplane was hugely complex technically. Um, can you describe then the process that you underwent of uh, getting to the point where you were ready to fly it? Oh gosh, well that that was about a year. You go in and have um, first thing you do, you get the uh, flight manual, and I showed that to you last time. It's around here someplace. Um, it's a three-volume set of books. The first two vol- the first volume is the most uh, critical for us, and that's uh, the airplane description, normal procedures, emergency procedures. Then you have um, uh, limits and auxiliary equipment, weather, um, all that. Anyway, that's it. It's uh, it's two two volumes. Um, it's the I'm sure it's the biggest. Uh, flight manual the Air Force has ever had. Our checklist was uh, not that thick. 
and it was it was heavy and it, and you know, we put I put that on my left uh, knee and my mission checklist on the right knee and uh, had that open all the time if if I was at, at climb or cruise there was a climb page and a cruise play page and so forth and and always the original question was uh, what we had to to learn okay so read the dash one we went to training uh ground training in all the systems so all of this is a month or so and then the simulator the simulator was where the training really really started so when you reported for simulator when i reported for simulator training i was expected to know the emergency procedures the normal procedures not not for memory the normal not for memory necessarily but to have a very good working knowledge of what it was uh, emergency procedures you had to memorize uh, and um, then the rest was practice and relearning so the first few simulators were just going through the normal procedures maybe they'd throw in an emergency or something but then when uh, and i forgot how many simulators we did but uh, we had numbered simulators and then warm-ups so we always had two simulator and a simulator uh, session was about four or five hours for the brief and everything. Uh, usually we would fly a one loop mission because we couldn't simulate every feeling because it was, there was no visual. It was all procedures. It had a move. It, it was a moving simulator, a motion, the three axes, of, but also rolled up, down, left, right, roll and y'all. Would also crash. I could get to that later. <laughs> the crash was spectacular. Um, so then, uh, for better part of a year, uh, you go through the simulator. Uh, say nine months, maybe. And then after that, you get your first flight. Our first flight, um, at least my first flight, was a subsonic flight. We didn't go out. We just went out and refueled, practice refueling came back and practiced the patterns and landings. Then the second and all the subsequent flights after that were um, to emulate a real reconnaissance mission. You take off, go to the tanker, refuel, accelerate, have a, a high Mach leg, you know, Mach. We usually go at 2.4, 2.8, 3, 3.1, 3.2. 3.2 was the highest. That's what I would... And it was kind of our choice uh, what we flew. I always flew 3.2 in the, what they call the denied area. We were in a SAM ring. I thought I wanted as much energy built up in that airplane as I could get. So anyway, all that takes is about a year or so. Uh, in my play, in my case, when I started training, the guy in front of me, the guy who was checking out, who was flying, had problems refueling. So he had to add two extra flights he, he, otherwise, he was a good guy, but and he just had trouble refueling. And so adding those two flights meant that the B model had to go back into a phase inspection, which takes about five months. So I was put back five months. And what did I do in that five months? More simulators. <laughs> so by the time I flew that airplane, I was really ready to fly that airplane. <laughs> <laughs> you, were you uh, flying T-38, T-38 for currency? Oh, yes. We flew the T-38, I say, all the time. There was one time, because we were low on enough, I flew it six times in one day, which I thought was 
a little too much. <laughs> anyway, I enjoy flying it, but I would rather spread that out a little bit, <laughs> not do it all in one. Uh, but they wanted to, uh, uh, I guess I'd been TDY or something, and I was deficient in, in, in time in the T-38. We flew the T-38 couple, two or three times a week, at least. And then we could go cross-country, which is always nice. So, so in terms of uh, the training um, at the beginning, are you introduced to your, is it radar systems officer? Are you sort yes. of crewed through training uh, with a new backseater? Well, his, uh, he, the initials are RSO. And I think officially it's reconnaissance systems operator. Um, sometimes we'd say, well, it's a rear seat occupant. <laughs> That's okay. I'll take care of the flying. You take care. <laughs> it's just like anything when you have navigate. They're all navigators. That there's always a friendly rivalry between navigators and pilots. Some of it, I think, is is um, it's not necessary. The thing that I that was the only sticky wicket there was uh, to coin a British phrase is well that uh, <laughs> that uh, the pilot was the supervisor of the navigator. You know, we're we're equal people. I mean, his job is just as important as mine, kind of. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, I mean, without him doing it, we don't have a mission. Without me doing it, we don't have a mission. So in that in that sense, it's uh, it's important. But I was his his reporting officer, and frankly, I didn't like that. I didn't want to be a reporting officer on my navigator because uh, I I didn't want to tell a lie if he made a mistake, which he rarely did, but. Uh, and it just just put us in a, in a supervisor subordinate role that I just wasn't wasn't uh, I didn't like. Now, who, they probably didn't like it either. Who was your RSO? Uh, Jay Reed. He was my first RSO. So he's still I, I had several. Well, he's uh, he lives in Sacramento, and uh, yeah, I saw him the last reunion. Great guy, wonderful guy. I tell you, he. He was, uh, he came, he was a radar nav and B-52s. He didn't have a good uh, background in how to fly instrument approaches, for instance. It was the first time we flew a T-38 in the weather and we were going to make a, a letdown, a you know, penetration approach, ILS or something. Uh, so I was, uh, I said, okay, now set up your instruments. Well, he didn't know how, and he, he didn't know how to read the approach plate. I was kind of shocked. I thought everybody knew how to read approach plate. <laughs> So we got down, and I, I taught him, and then after that, it was okay. But it just uh, just a little different, uh, little different background. Um, most of the um, RSOs were radar navs and B-52s, or came from the uh, FB-111 or the B-111, the SAC version. Uh, but they were all universally great, wonderful. My last boss was J.T. Vita, who was a RSO. He was the first... Uh, certainly the first non-test pilot and non-pilot to be the uh, boss of flight test at Palmdale, which is quite an honor. Anyway, I loved him. He was a, he was a wonderful man. Um, but Jay was a guy who, if you give him a checklist to run, he's going to run it. I don't care what happens. You could have incoming. I don't know what, he's going to run that checklist. And it, it irritated me a little bit at first, but I, golly, I just, I learned to uh, really appreciate that, that that was, that was exactly the thing that he's supposed to do. I, I would be trying to describe something and he'd be running the next checklist see, or the next, next item. 
that's okay. He's doing it right. And uh, uh, we got along great. He, we uh, were together about three years, and then he went off to be a base commander, and I just stayed in the program. Can we go back then to the um, the induction or the, the training? Um, you've already mentioned uh, at Carswell, noticing the spikes on the engines, or the, they're not on the engines, are they? They're in front of the engines. But um, can you talk a little bit then about the technology uh, in the aeroplane and what made it fast and what allowed it to fly high and uh, how well not not necessarily how you learned about those things but what what you learned about those things and what mattered and what what didn't matter well i i I wasn't a physicist i took physics in college but not not aerodynamic physicist so i was a little bit surprised at the heat rise as you get to get to mach 3 and uh, i i now know where it comes from and everything but um, that, that was the first thing that, that surprised me was the uh, average, if you look, I've seen other things quoted, but uh, the Lockheed people say the average skin temperature is 620 degrees Fahrenheit. And I know that the window in front of my face was about that because it, it was like my oven on the cleaning cycle. It was really, really hot. So that was the first thing, but the what what does cause the, that? Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but what does cause that then? So you said you know what causes it. What, what is it specifically oh, in about about that? Well, sort of? the, um, you're going through the air at uh, about 340 or so knots equivalent airspeed now, uh, and and but you're going, and that's 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 the dynamic pressure on the airplane, but you are traveling at. Know, at max speed, about 2,200 miles an hour. But every time you hit a air particle, it turns into heat. And it's uh, the uh, it's just like kinetic energy. Uh, it's uh, one half uh, uh, mc squared, not mc squared. Um, one half rho v squared, that's what it is. And so um, it's the, the square of the um, velocity is the heat rise. So that means if you double your speed, it's four times the heat, four times the kinetic energy. So I could I could describe to you what, what happens to the airplane from takeoff to Mach 3, if you like. Uh, from takeoff, it's uh, like a conventional airplane. It, it, it literally has uh, more thrust than weight uh, empty. So you add fuel to it, and that, that uh, decreases the apparent thrust. But it had enough thrust that you're... Um, at a 12,000 foot runway, which we operated out of almost all the time, you're going about 400 knots at the end of the runway with the gear up. So it is, acceleration was not a problem. Um, then um, the speed limit uh, at sea level is 500 knots uh, dynamic pressure, 500 knots equivalent speed. And we had a direct reading of the equivalent airspeed right in front of us, which is the most important speed that, that we were dealing with that Mach number. So then they start your climb, uh, get about 10,000 foot per minute rate of climb, or you could zoom faster than that, but you sustain 10,000 foot per minute rate of climb up to 25,000 feet, level off on the way to the tanker. Normally we take off with a half a fuel load. The full fuel load is 80,000 pounds. We would take off with about, or get in the airplane with about 45,000. By the time we take off, it's 40,000 pounds of fuel. The airplane empty weighs 60,000, so you're taking off with a 100,000-pound airplane, and the engines are putting out 73,000 or so uh, pounds of thrust. Um, 
up at 25,000 feet on the way to the tanker is when your first chance to check out the system's flying. So I, I check the stability augmentators and, and uh, the, just the way it feels and the instruments and everything, everything looks good. And then you start, uh, start ranging with the airplane, with the uh, tanker. The tanker and the receiver, the, the SR, uh, have uh, classified uh, radios that uh, no one else, if they were on the same frequency, they, all they did were static. Uh, so we had to put in the, the code of the day and we could also find out how, how close they were. So we would range and get azimuth. So I knew exactly where the tanker was as we were heading for the tanker. They, in fact, knew where we were. So they would time their, uh, their turn. They would, they would always be off to the, my left. They would time their turn so that uh, when they rolled out, we were about a mile or so behind them, if everything works out okay. Or maybe a little bit more. But And uh, having this habitual practice of being in that turn made it easy to spot the tanker because his wings are 30 degrees and there's the tanker. Never had a problem finding the tanker except in the clouds. When the clouds, then you just work on your uh, azimuth and your range. I have been known when I, we were in the clouds to go down to a half a mile before I saw the tanker, which is I'm supposed to knock it off at one mile. But I was, I, we'd already, we knew what altitude he was at and we were a thousand feet below. So I, I, I knew that it was, it was safe and I needed the gas. So <laughs> you just go after it. Um, then uh, the hookup on the tanker, do you want me to describe the whole mission or just the, uh, yeah, the whole thing. Well, why not? Um, but bef before you go there, can I ask then just about the ranging? So, so there is air-to-air TACAN. Is it a similar yeah. system that you were using that system, or or you were direction finding off of the radios? These sort of secret, secret radios you're talking about. Well, it was it was not really a TACAN. It was the uh, UHF radio that had ranging. Yeah, how it worked, I have no idea, but it worked well. <laughs> so uh, the the um, there, I have a video. Uh, you can look at BC Thomas uh, on the uh, on YouTube. I have a video of uh, that I didn't know I was being videoed at the time, but uh, the boom operator, the guy with the boom operator, took it of my approach to the tanker, and you can see you first see the SR seventy one way down there, hardly make it out, and then I had about a hundred knot over overtake to the tanker. And in fact, the boom operator mentions at one time um, closing rapidly. And I, I, I like, because as long as I'm VFR and I can see everything, I wanted to get it there. I wanted to practice getting there as quickly as possible. So uh, the recommended technique is to uh, go to the right wing and stop. And that's called the observation position. And then without any, uh, except for training missions, all of our refuelings were done radio out. Right? We didn't talk on the radio. Uh, then without any uh, uh, clearance or anything, if you didn't have clearance, the boom would be stowed. So if the boom is normal, go to the pre-contact position. And then on a training sortie, then you say, uh, Aspen 3-0, stabilize pre-contact. And then the boom operator says whatever he wants to say, you know, clear it in or something. Um, on a uh, normal, uh, on a operational mission, then you go to the pre-contact everything's fine, and this, this go right on into the contact position. 
the boom operator stabs you, and then uh, we could talk to the tanker crew through the boom. The boom had a boom interphone. So we just talked to them and, and pass along any information, or, or they would tell us anything. Usually we'd have two tankers for every refueling. Uh, obviously, either one could give us the full load, but uh, they had two so that uh, one, the crews could have practice, and two was if one couldn't offload, the other would offload everything. I, I never had a problem refueling, uh, I mean, for as far as the tankers you know, passing fuel. So you uh, say hook up, get about half your fuel load, and then go over to the other tanker and do the same thing. The interesting thing about the SR is that uh, you, we take on 80,000 pounds of gas and we weigh 60, so we're a 140,000 pound airplane. And just before refueling, I was you know, less than 100,000 pounds. So it's uh, the airplane is heavy. So the, the airplane has a lot of flying characteristics that are different when you're light, traffic pattern, and when you are heavy, i.e. just came off the boom. Came off the boom, you better not pull more than about one and a half cheese. It's just very, very sensitive. It's a, it's a delicate airplane at that time. The other thing is that we would refuel the uh, optimum altitude is 26,000. If you go higher than that, the tanker has a uh, mock restriction. And so to stay within the mock restriction at 31,000, for instance, their dynamic pressure would be a lot lower. So that would be make it tough on us. We'd be right near the stall, and you never want to stall the SR-71 because the uh, the wing stalls before the chine, and so it has a tendency to do that. So you want to be at 26,000 feet. You want to be as high as possible because when you get off and you start your climb, you don't have to climb 26,000 feet. You're, you're already there. Uh, so you save fuel by being high, but uh, if you go any higher, you're, you're going to be dynamically... Uh, in a, a bad a bad area as you take on fuel about 10 or 15,000 pounds to go the sr becomes power limited because you're on the back side of the power curve the uh, drag versus uh, speed curve um, so because you're so heavy so <laughs> what happens is that you uh, have to to stay on the boom you have to light an afterburner well, the technique, if you, if you don't want to disconnect and go through the procedure of lighting the boom and coming back in, you'll, you want to save time, then uh, we all, all of us, lit the boom, the uh, burner on the boom while we were refueling. And I, it took me about close to a year to figure this out, but this is the procedure, and this is honest. And this, you, you do this in the SR-71, you will not have a problem. So... You hooked up everything. As soon as I felt the throttles hit the, the mill stop, 100% uh, without afterburner, then I would always tell the boom operator, because you don't want to do anything jerky. <laughs> the boom operator's not prepared for Boom, I'm going to write the left, I'm going to light the left afterburner. You, you light the left afterburner because the only uh, window that's anti-iced is a left window. So when you light the left afterburner, that skews the airplane to the right, and you can see see better like that. So you put the uh, left throttle in afterburner range, and you go one potato, two potato, three potato, and pull the throttle back that much, that much, and it's perfect. You're right there, and then you just modulate with the right uh, throttle. But what I did before I learned this, and Rich Graham is the one who told me this. 
bless his heart, it was at uh, Kadena. And I would say, Rich, I'm really having a tough time lighting the burner on the boom. And every time I, yeah, a little bit late and stuff. I always caught my fuel, but I, I didn't like it. It was uneasy. Well, what are you doing with the throttle? He says, <laughs> well, I put the throttle and then I said, no, no, no there's, a, there's a technique for that. So I, I didn't learn that until I was already qualified, mission qualified at Kadena. But after that, it was it worked out really well. So can after just, that, yeah, just, just can you just talk a little bit about that then? The, the visibility, the, the combing, the fact that in the SR you've got a—I don't know if it's really visible to you flying oh, it, yeah. but there is a a pillar or whatever in between, right, looking down the middle of where you would you would look if you were looking forwards. Yeah, the the, the windows are like this, and uh, the, with the bar in the middle, and um, no, you just you just look around it. F one hundred and six, F one hundred and two had the same same thing. Do you do you end up not being cognizant of it after time, or yeah. do you always notice it? Uh, it n- didn't bother me. No, it never bothered me because there's there's enough out there that you can see without worrying about this little bar here. And if you want to look around it, just go like that. Look around it. Um, no, it de- didn't bother me at all. Um, and BC, before you continue with the narrative of the mission, um, you mentioned that once you were full, you didn't want to pull more than a G and a half. Um, what was it that made the aeroplane um, sort of uncomfortable with, with anything more than that? What, what was what was going on? Well, you're close to stall if you try to pull more than that because you, you, you we're we're not. And this is starting up, not not in acceleration because acceleration we're at 400, 450 knots equivalent airspeed. But uh, it's just the airplane is just um, delicate. I say the best word for it is just delicate at that uh, at that time when you when you take off when you disconnect from the boom to the full load of gas the, the reason why the g is there is because of structural limits what were the normal g, g limits uh, it depends on uh the fuel load and whether you're maneuvering or not and the uh, the distribution of the fuel so the uh, the, the uh, center of gravity i don't know what all that stuff is i mean it's it's, it's a there's a chart on it but my rule of thumb is you never pull more than two G's ever. And uh, we also had a uh, pitch boundary indicator that told us when we got close to a limit. Um, it wasn't necessarily a G limit. It wasn't, but it was uh, AOA. And so the, the two are related, of course. You pull more G's, you get more AOA. Um, and it was a, a shaker. Or, I'm sorry. It was a yeah a shaker. First thing you get was a shaker, which would be um, non-centric uh, motor attached to the control stick and rattle, rattle, you could hear the rattle. And if you went farther than that, and it was based on either the AOA or the rate of approaching the high AOA, then it would take the uh, control away from the pilot and push your nose down. It was that critical that you not not get close to a stall. So you'd be flying along, and I felt it well, a couple of times. Boom, boom, it goes like that. And and there's no no doubt what's what's going on. You check everything. Okay. Uh, there was a, a famous story of a crew doing a air show at Toronto, and uh, they were uh, they were on their way back to Beale, so they were like forty five fifty thousand pounds of gas on the airplane, and they were trying to do an air show like they did when they came back, <laughs> and the guy got into pusher, you know. 45 degree bank turn close to the ground and it it uh, 
the airplane disappeared <laughs> for a while. The wing commander was there watching it, and he uh, he briefed us all on it. So we all were uh, admonished that uh, you know when you fly that airplane, it's not a fighter airplane. It looks like one, but it's not one. <laughs> you don't uh, you don't yank and bank that airplane. You are on the on the, the subject of the KC-135, so this would have been a KC-135Q, so that's a yeah. special variant of it dedicated to the, the SR-71. Um, what, I mean, you flew them, so I'll ask you the question, what else was different about the Q model? The Q model was made for the SR-71, but if they had extra Q models, I guess, because I flew one over in, over in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. Uh, it was it had, a, it had a supplement to the flight manual that told I was a co-pilot that told the co-pilot how to refuel with the thing. But the only thing different was that it, it had the ability to segregate the tanks that was for the SR, the JP-7 fuel, from the other fuel. Uh, so you, you certainly don't want to mix those two fuels and then give it to the SR. So they had a way that they could but other than that, it was just a normal tanker. Uh, it might have had, I don't, it probably had the classified, the control head for the classified radio taken out. I don't remember seeing anything unusual about it. I've flown in the queue uh, to watch other guys refuel, uh, you know, just for fun or for edification and fun. I, I don't know anything. And we used, we flew in the tanker when we, uh, if we didn't fly the SR to Okinawa, which of course was a big, big, uh, big deal, uh, then we flew in the tanker and uh, to Okinawa. And that's how we got back, back and forth for our TDYs. Usually it was by the tanker. And the tanker was also used as a cargo airplane to carry all sorts of stuff. It was usually loaded down. So, so before you pick up then on the, uh, on this, on the story of the mission, um, the, that refueling was done at what sort of speed then? Um, it would, uh, yeah, the, air, the, the tanker, I think, uh, speed limit was 350 uh, indicated or calibrated. And um, we flew about 365. They had a dispensation to go a little bit above their limit. So about 365. All right, uh, so after the tank, then uh, we... Uh, run the checklist and, and then uh, start the uh, Axel. We had an Axel checklist. Uh, put the engines into uh, men afterburner, make sure everything works, and then nice, gently put them up to full afterburner. Again, check the engine instruments, everything works. Then now we're looking for uh, 450 knots or 500 knots, 450 usually, um, just to have, so we wouldn't be at the limit. And start a climb up to 30,000 feet or was it 35? Yeah, 35,000. And at 35,000 at uh, 450 knots, we'd be right around 0.9 something, 9.3 or 9.4. And then to, um, uh, to go through the Mach, because that's a high speed or high drag region to go through Mach 1, to go punch through that uh, bow wave. Uh, we would then start what we call dips doodle, but it, it just lower the nose to about 10 degrees nose nose low, and I, I would I would lower it kind of slowly, it, uh, put it on about maybe uh, 0.6 g, come down so it got light in my seat a little bit, and then that allowed the airplane to start accelerating, and then go down to uh, about 10 degrees nose low, and then the airplane starts accelerating because you're using uh, you're using gravity to help you. 
And then you would bottom out about 30,000 feet at, um, um, you'd be supersonic at that time. And then you maintain your 450 knots equivalent airspeed all the way up until about Mach 1.6, where you have to um, bleed, I forgot what it was, 10 knots for every one-tenth of a knot, Mach number or so. But anyway, you had to, the autopilot would do that for you or on the checklist that told you what speed you should have at any particular altitude. I used to have that memorized, but I don't remember what all the speeds were now. Um, and then we had all sorts of checks. So we had lots of checklists, uh, monitoring. The main thing we monitor is uh, inlet guide vanes and speed, of course, Mach, fuel, center of gravity, and uh, the inlet. And then the inlet starts scheduling about 1.7 Mach or so. And uh, the uh, spike, you see the, the pointy thing out the engine, retracts. And it tracks 26 inches. Uh, so at Mach uh, 3.2, it's all the way back at 26 inches. And if the spike, uh, the spike is, the position is pretty critical. If you get, get off, you can get an unstart, which I'll describe later if you like. Or um, you can lose gas. If the spike is too far forward, if it's a half an inch too far forward, that could mean the end of the, of the mission fuel-wise. Uh, you wouldn't know it for a while, but it, it would. Your, your fuel curve would start going down. So then once you get uh, level, now your dynamic pressure is now around 340, maybe 330 uh, knots, equivalent airspeed. But your Mach uh, is Mach 3, and your true airspeed is uh, 1,800 or so. Uh, if you want to push it up uh, more than that, you want to go to Mach 3.2. was uh, uh, The maximum Mach on the flight manual that you're supposed to go is Mach 3.3. We would cruise at 3.2, giving us a little bit of pad um, just for that reason. You have pad, but you could always go that extra tenth if you wanted to assuming that you're staying within the temperature limits. How high are you at this point? Well, you'd level off about 73,000, and then as the fuel burns up, and you'd be above 80. Or you could go right to 80 if you want to, but you wouldn't be at optimum altitude. We, we always flew at optimum altitude for the power setting and for the gross weight and the outside air temperature. So we had a, a checklist that would take all three of those variables into consideration and tell you what altitude is best for you to be. And uh, I would always, you know, strive for that altitude. Um, the autopilot did not have altitude hold on it, so it, the only thing you could do is uh, to uh, set an attitude hold. And one particular attitude would usually be okay to follow the keys bleed schedule because the higher you go, the the uh, you have to uh, go at a lower dynamic pressure because you're at a higher temperature, and that's for structural reasons. So your, uh, your speed limit, I've been asked, you know, hey, what's the hot, fastest it can go? Well, I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question because I don't think anyone would be foolish enough at 80,000 feet to go to full power and just see what happens. I mean, that's, that's pretty stupid. I never, ever, and I don't think anybody else, well, maybe one guy, <laughs> intentionally uh, broke any speed limits or any limit on the airplane. I, there's just no reason to. If, if I break a, the limit and the next guy breaks the limit and the next guy breaks the limit, then the airplane is not the same airplane. It's not the airplane that the that maintenance has promised it will be for the third or fourth guy. 
because all of these limits are not absolute uh, brick walls. They're all probability statements. So like the, uh, the limit, the usual, the first limit that we would hit would be the compressor inlet temperature of 427 degrees centigrade, which is 800 degrees Fahrenheit. And this 427 sounds funny. It was because it's 800 degrees Fahrenheit and then the gauge is in centigrade. So uh, if you hit that limit, then you're supposed to stop. And, and usually we would hit that around Mach 3.2. So that's the temperature of the air coming in and meeting the front of the engine? Correct. The okay. front, of the, uh, front of the compressor. Okay. What, what other limits did you have then? I mean, not necessarily the numbers, but what other things were you looking for temperature-wise? Because that was going to be my next question. How do you know what the temperatures are? Because you... Well, we had bay, we could we could see what our bay temperatures are. I mean, we had a selector for that, and the cockpit. We had two two independent air conditioners that uh, either one would cool the cockpit to survival, but you need both of them to be comfortable. How do I know? Because I lost one one time, <laughs> and the cockpit got up to a hundred hundred and sixty, I think, or something like that. It was it was it was damn hot. Now, the the good news is that we had. We had air circulating in our pressure suit, and if you inflate your pressure suit, then you are somewhat insulated from the outside temperature. But what was funny was it was it was 160 may be too much, maybe it was 140, but it was above 120. Because 120 is what it is at, uh, in, in Arizona, you know, in the summertime. But it was it was hot to touch the control stick. Control stick was really hot. Yeah, I could feel it through the garden gloves. The, the pressure suit goes. Anyway, that was just one time that I lost that uh, one air conditioner. Um, and we continued the mission. I mean, it was uncomfortable, but you know, if we'd lost the other one, then we might. The, the thing is that I don't know how quickly the cockpit would heat up. Obviously, you can't live in 600 degree Fahrenheit temperature. That's that's your oven on cleaning cycle. Seriously. So you can't you can't stay at that. Well. If you uh, did emergency descent, I think you could get down pretty quick. The thing is, is you have to reduce your speed. That's that's the big, big thing to reduce your speed. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not sort of um, engineeringy or sort of aerodynamically minded. Um, so I hope this isn't an absurd question. But you you mentioned low dynamic pressure. Um, does that mean that if you had, for whatever reason, to eject at that altitude, even though the Mark number would have been high? the um the impact of the airflow on you your body as you left the airplane would not have been as as great as 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 maybe sort of you were lower down and a bit slower well the 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 problem with ejecting at that altitude is that the outside air temperature is about one quarter of one pound per square inch and 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 it's it's virtually a vacuum so uh, if you don't if you don't keep your body pressurized somehow, then you're going to die instantly. And I mean instantly. Your blood will boil. All your blood will boil, and uh, it would not be good. So you really depend on your pressure suit. The pressure suit is your is your get me down suit. It's a it's your lifeline. Um, I never had a um, loss of pressurization, so I never had to use it in emergency. But every every uh, year, I think it was, we were in the altitude chamber and they would do that they would put the altitude chamber down to maybe 60,000 feet it wouldn't be all the way to 80,000 but down to 60 and then uh, they would uh, depressurize it or pressurize it by 
they have two uh, two chambers. You're in the small chamber, in the big chamber. They take down to sixty thousand feet. You're here, and then they they bring the two chambers together. So uh, what happens is you the uh, uh, you're really isolated from breathing any of this air because you get uh, there's two independent systems of oxygen going into your helmet. It's 100% oxygen fed into the face face plate, which is sealed at all times. And so that but the instance is first of all there's instant fog, and the the uh, they're testing whether the pressure suit will inflate. It inflates immediately. Uh, I don't mean within a second, but I mean immediately. You go whoosh, like that, and then of course your hands are like like the uh, Phil's Barry Doughboy, <laughs> like this. But it's still enough that you know if you've got some biceps, you can you can fly an airplane that way. Uh, but that, that people have ejected at Mach three, so there are there are demonstrations for that. Uh, um, Saint Martin and uh, Car- Carnahan were uh, guys at Mach at Mach three that ejected. Uh, they said that it uh, felt like somebody hitting the, hitting them with a two by four, not not wham in the face, but just you know back, back just hit them like that. And that uh, I, th- I think they might have lost consciousness too. But um, it's kind of a funny thing on the maybe they didn't. The suit had built-in life preservers, three of them. Uh, any two of which would keep you afloat, and they would inflate upon contact with water. There were sensors that would, so if you bailed out over the ocean, and we did a lot of over-ocean flying, then uh, you, you wouldn't even have to be conscious to have everything work okay. Uh, you would have to raise, the, you know, it's, it's funny that uh, most people think that you'd have to, you, you could lower your faceplate, and that's what, no, you have to raise your faceplate because if you go underwater with your faceplate, there's an anti-suffocation valve, and the water would come in there and fill up your faceplate. So you got to open that. Oh, the other thing is it written on our pressure suit sleeve. If you ever see a picture of somebody in a pressure suit, you'll see written here and here are two checklists, and those are checklists that you perform on the way down from your ejection. <laughs> I always like to say, well, it'll, it'll, it'll give you something to do because <laughs> you're going to be falling for a while, a few minutes. And uh, it automatically opens it. The parachute automatically goes to 15,000. You have a life preserver and a, I mean, a, a raft and a survival kit that automatically deploy just like a normal fighter airplane. Oh, and the other thing is that the faceplate had a built-in battery in the suit that would keep the faceplate from fogging up because obviously if you're out in the minus 60 uh, ambient uh, air it's going to fog up so so that you can read that checklist you can be advised that the uh, visor will be okay will be clear let's return to the um the the progress of the sortie in a second but I, i just wanted to before i forget um on a bit of a tangent ask you about landing in the sea then because i think there was one individual who ejected and landed in the sea and drowned um yes. uh, i mean what were you what were you expected to do if you landed in the sea were you expected to stay in the spacesuit well sorry i keep calling it spacesuit were you expected to stay in the pressure suit get yourself into your life raft and just wait to be rescued uh, were you supposed to get out of the pressure suit somehow 
Well, you didn't have a choice. You, there's no way you could get out of the pressure suit. Okay. Can you take the helmet off? I mean... Well, you could take the helmet off, uh, but you didn't have to. The helmet's pretty good to you know protect your head from hitting things. Um, no, we practiced that. We uh, went through water survival in the pressure suit. I've been through it, I don't know, four or five times, where they actually put you out in the water with a raft, and uh, then you, you practice getting in. You'd go to the back of the raft, grab both sides, close down, and then pull up. And so you, as long as you get your CG inside the raft, then you can wiggle with it, you know, to get it, to get the raft under you. So it's doable. It's not easy, but it's doable. And uh, I, I didn't, I won't say I didn't have any problem, but I, I got into the raft successfully each time. And then uh, once you're in the raft, then you can take your helmet off. Sure. And, uh, is, there, is there, I mean, I, I, the one thing I sort of, I, I would wonder is whether it could fill with water. And, and then well, just yes, drag, drag you down. So, so would you do that's your take? Why you had, that's why you had three life preservers on you. Okay. But <laughs> then you think about sort of the ejection process and whether or not those could become, I don't know, maybe this is just not how you'd think if you were flying the aircraft like you did. You just don't go through the different scenarios. But I think, well, what happens, what happens if well, there, there's, uh, two there's of them n- don't, don't inflate? Well, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. If they don't inflate, you're in big trouble. So that's why that's why you flew for a living and uh, and and others don't because you you don't go that far in your in your thinking then. Well, the the, the stuff that they uh, they give us for life uh, saving stuff equipment is darn good. It, it is good. It's checked, and the people who do it are professionals. I can't tell you how. I mean, I I had one suit malfunction one time, and it inflated when I couldn't control it. It inflated on my way to the tanker. So here I am like this, and I said, well, you know, I really can't do the mission with this because we're, we're, we were not allowed, unless we were in bad territory or something, we're not allowed to continue our mission with an inflated pressure suit because you are restricted. Uh, but I tried everything. I even radioed back to uh, the physiological support people and asked them, and it just wasn't anything I could do about it. So the, the way that you depressurize your suit is to uh, break the seal at the at the uh, glove and now, now it's just a normal thing it's a normal flight suit then so, so you're up at uh you haven't ejected you're up at uh sort of 70 odd thousand feet climbing as you get lighter um mark 3.2 um what's what, what happens next um or maybe uh you could introduce you mentioned it a, a few minutes ago uh, unstarts into the into the equation uh, yeah what are you yeah. dealing with as a pilot then well, I say first of all, you you have to be at the right altitude given the, the uh, gross weight and everything. If if you're lower than that altitude, then uh, you, your uh, not so coolant airspeed will be too high for that altitude. If you are higher uh, than you should be, then not so coolant airspeed will be too low. So you want to have you want to have everything right. You want to have it optimal because I tell you, there's a a Lockheed um, historian engineer named Steve Justice. And I heard him describe it. Now, he's not a pilot and he never flown the airplane, but I heard him describe it better than I've ever heard it before. He said, flying the SR-71 is like taking your sports car out to a uh, freeway and floorboarding it and keeping it there for an hour or so. You're flying at the max speed you can go. 
and everything, all you know, the dynamic pressure limit is 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 getting uh, the temperature, the Mach, uh, all of that is is is, is at the, the max. So it's a point design airplane for th Mach three point two. Anything off of Mach three point two is uh, not optimum. Um, the other thing about if you're at Mach three and you want to save gas, you accelerate, and that's true. Get much better of a gas mileage at Mach three point two, but at Mach three point two, your temperature is a lot hotter. Uh, you're higher. You have to be higher, and when you are higher, you have less damping. You have less uh, You have less uh, ambient air pressure. Uh, the airplane is not uh, as maneuverable. Uh, and what I mean by maneuverable is one uh, characteristic of an unstart is a pitch up. It always gives you a pitch up of some kind. The faster you are and the higher you are, the worse the pitch up was. Uh, I was doing a test at Edwards uh, on the DAFIC system. And we'd never done a full rudder side slip at Mach 3.2. So uh, we decided, Tom Tilden and I decided that uh, we would put that in the, in the flight manual. Yeah, okay, in the flight plan. So I went up at Mach 3.2 and did a full rudder side slip. Well, it was just fine until I got to that last inch. And when I got the last inch, it let go like I had never seen before. It was the biggest, loudest unstart and i was in the worst possible point you could be the airplane pitched up and i went full forward stick uh trimming nose down and it still went up and then it stopped and then it kind of stayed there for a little bit and then it started coming down and um i, I was re reminded of uh, bill weaver bill weaver was a lockheed test pilot in the early days and he lost an airplane finding out what the AFCG limit was. He was in a 45-degree bank turn at Mach 3.3, probably, and had an unstart, and uh, the airplane pitched up and just kept on pitching up, and he went to full forward stick. So that's the kind of limit you're looking at, is that you are flying the thing at, at the flight manual limit and an airplane's limit. That's a lot to unravel in that. Um, can you start, for, for those who have no idea what it is, by explaining what a, an unstart is? Yes. Um, first, a started inlet is, um, th this was well known, I say, by the ancients a long time ago, how supersonic shock waves react. Okay, When you hit Mach 1, uh, the airplane hits a bow wave like this. And what why the speed of sound is, is important is because speed of sound is the uh, speed at which uh, information can be propagated in the air. So if you take a fan and go like that, the air currents move. Well, each individual air molecule gets the information at the speed of sound and no, no, no greater than that. So when you hit the speed of sound, what you have is a buildup of air molecules they're not supposed to be there they're supposed to be spread out but you're going so fast that you've you bunched them up and now to punch through it you punch through it with the speed and then this this shock wave starts bending back to to a cone and you can see uh there's lots of um, diagrams in the uh, internet to show you that but then, then that's called the mock cone and the mock cone then starts to envelop the airplane um, if you really want to know how fast the airplane can go and stay maneuverable, then you can uh, see the angle between the nose and the tip of the, of the wing. That angle 
kind of tells you that you, you go faster than that angle, then you're going to be, uh, you're going to have Buffett on your, on your ailerons or on your elevons. And that may not be a good, good thing to do. So that's one, one way. So as you, and then as you punch through, then you have shock waves build up. Well, the engine wants as much pressure. I'm talking in terms of the engine being the a living thing. The engine to, to perform properly must have the optimum or it must have as much pressure as you can get so that the compressor can take that and compress it more and turn it into thrust. Um, if you if you go from a okay now when you have supersonic flow you can either set up a series of oblique shocks, which gradually decrease the pressure, the pressure coming in on the on the uh, on the free stream side of the uh, of the uh, flow, or you could have a normal shock, and all supersonic flow has to terminate in a perpendicular normal shock to the flow. But the pressure recovery on the other side of the normal shock is a function of one over the Mach number. What that means is that the optimum recovery would be Mach 1.1 or so, normal shock, and then you have one divided by 1.1, which is pretty close to one. You have that much recovery. So at Mach 3, then that, uh, if you just went from Mach 3 to a normal shock to the compressor, then that the uh, the function would be uh, multiplied by uh, one third, so you'd lose one third of your pressure, or more. So the idea is to set up a series of oblique shocks that are predictable, and you do that by changing the uh, position from the from the uh, first thing that the air sees, which is the tip of the spike, which is very sharp, and the inlet. And then inside the inlet, as you as you uh, accelerate, you want to change the capture area by moving the, the uh, spike back. It increases the capture area. Then, according to the geometric configuration of the inlet and the geometric shape of the spike, these sets of oblique shocks are set up so that you will have at the throat, and the throat is the the minimum uh, part of the flow between the outside and the compressor, that, that is the place where the normal shock is. So if everything's working well, you have slowed the air down uh, scientifically, methodically, and have recovered all of the pressure that you can have in the inlet. Now, I said earlier that the outside um, air pressure is about one quarter of one PSI. On the ground, it's uh, at sea level, it's uh, 15.8 or so PSI. So it's a big difference. By going at Mach 3 and using this, this uh, step-down method, if the inlet is working right, the pressure at the compressor face is about 15 to 16 PSI. So pressure-wise, the engine thinks it's at sea level, but it's at 80,000 feet. Okay, now an unstart is the violent expulsion of the normal shock from inside the inlet to outside the airplane. So it expels it forwards. Yes. Yeah, it goes boom, wham. And so I say violent e e expulsion because it happens immediately. And uh, sometimes there's no warning for it. Now, what would cause it? Uh, well, for one thing, angle uh, angle of uh, side slip. 
I demonstrated that at Mach 3.2. Now, the airplane is supposed to, the spike is supposed to compensate for a side slip and for angle of attack, because they both would, would cause this, which would bias the spike slightly forward and make it a little bit more safe. This is, this is how it works. Um, but I can tell you at Mach 3.2, that's not enough. Don't, don't, go, don't do a full rudder side slip. And there's no reason to do that anyway. It was just a test, you know. <laughs> so um, anyway, so the violent expulsion. So what you have to do is for that particular inlet is you have to make it in a safe configuration. The safe configuration is to open the forward bypass doors and keep the spike full forward. Well, this gives you an increased drag. And it's um, uh, on the first supersonic flight, the instructor always demonstrated this, you know, here we are going along, and you could hit what they call the restart switch, and that would put you in the in this safe configuration. But it would it would, it would burr, you feel like this the drag, considerable drag on the airplane. Uh, there's nothing to keep you from taking the throttle and, and going full then to to stop the deceleration. But what are you doing? You're flying around with your uh, throttle in full afterburner, and what, what's your fuel doing? <laughs> going down. So you want to get that thing, um, you want to get that thing fixed as, as soon as possible. Uh, the emergency procedure is, first of all, the Air Force never cared for making emergency uh, part of the emergency procedure the uh, immediate action, something to do with flying the airplane because we're all supposed to know how to fly the airplane. And on this one, it's different. It was alpha within limits, and alpha within limits means that we all know expect a pitch up. Check your alpha. If you don't see the nose coming up, check your alpha anyway, because it might be. And if it does come up, then be prepared to go a full forward stick and trim uh, down. Uh, the trim actually would increase your uh, nose down authority from the, the, uh, the elevons. So that was the thing that you could do. That, that's what I did, and it, it worked. The recovery procedure is to first um, bring back the uh, uh, spike, so you, you have a manual uh, pot or a potentiometer that you can put the spike back to where it should be, noting your Mach number and noting the position. And the spike, incidentally, was in Mach number. It was not by inches. We don't care what inches is. I want to know where that thing should be because the spike was, was um, strictly on a Mach schedule, the position, spike position. So if I'm at 2.8, now I put that thing at 2.8 and it biased it a little bit. So you hit, and then you take the forward bypass door and close it down. That's called a manual inlet if you've done it manually. What you can do is let it go through its normal recycle and just see what happens. And uh, most of the time it, it came back and restarted just fine. So it, it would do that automatically for you one time. And then if it didn't work that time, you do it. Do it yourself. You, you said it was violent, but violent it was. So you would bang your head against the the canopy, and and, well, and it was completely unexpected, right? You oh, unexpected. Yes, there were a few times when, if it rumbled or something like that, it, it might happen. Um, there was one airplane, I nine five eight, I think, that had a had a habit of doing that rumble and then start. Yeah, I think it was nine five eight. We called them by number. <laughs> we knew those airplanes. <laughs> Nine five six was a trainer, and it was it was always in good shape. Um, 
How long did it take to get the engine back doing what it was supposed to do? How long, or the shockwave rather, doing what it was supposed to, what you wanted it to do? Um, you know, would it, would... Yeah, four seconds. Okay. So, so it didn't impact op- operationally. So you could be in the middle of a mission and, and it wasn't the end of the world. But now this is another caveat is you better know what you're doing. See, because if you get the spike back first uh, before the... Uh, the, 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 well, the other thing is, what makes flying at high altitude critical is that your CG, your EGT, your exhaust gas temperature, is very sensitive at high altitude. So you um, you have an unstarted inlet. You have decreased the flow of air into your compressor. Well, what does that do? That increases your EGT. The um, dash one, the flight manual said you have three seconds to get that engine, to get that EGT back if it goes above 950, I think. Uh, we had a crew that uh, had an end start and it was, uh, it, you know, at high mock and uh, they burned up an engine in three seconds. Um, they, they were not uh, to blame for it, but it's just, it was, they were at high mock and high altitude and the uh, they tried, oh, I know, their D-rich system failed. That was the other thing. We had a, a D-rich system that if the EGT got above a certain limit, it was um, maybe 30, degree, 30 degrees higher than the max limit, then the fuel control would actually take fuel away from the engine and cause a degradation in the engine, uh, just like taking your throttle back below afterburner. Um, only it was better than that because you really didn't have, uh, I'm getting into the weeds here, <laughs> the fuel control wouldn't let you do that, but the, uh, the, the D-Rich would do that. And, uh, that that would that would keep you out of trouble. But on his particular thing, he had this unstart at high altitude. The UGT went up. The D-rich system didn't work, and you know, say, hey, what's going on? Engine gone. Just takes that long. When you say gone, do you mean actually gone, or just to the point where you're not going to fly with that engine again? I mean, was it still generating thrust? No, it, it was burned. It was completely wow. burned in three seconds. Oh Gosh. yeah. Well, I mean, it might have taken a while to really burn it but it was by the time they got on the ground it, it never was that was just garbage in the, in the end before you uh, we're never going to get to the end of this mission because I, I keep asking you questions um but before you pick up the commentary then um just circling right back to the beginning of the conversation you talked uh, i said to you about the cockpit uh, being surprised that um and people could you know we were allowed to see it and you mentioned that um you know it was secret because of those um spike um, potentiometers that you know that, that obviously indicated the mark, um, but you also talked about TDI. Uh, you mentioned that very briefly, so that's triple display indicator, I think. Um, and you've also mentioned the fact that the um, the airspeed, I think, in, in knots um, equivalent airspeed, I think you said, was very clearly enunciated in front of you. Um, what what was the design of the cockpit like then, from a, a pilot's point of view? It, it sounds like there, there was some good thought put, put into you know how to make it as user-friendly as possible especially given what you've already said about it being a, a, a complicated airplane to fly well i can tell you some of the tests that we did um when the airplane was first built they had a um, standard attitude indicator right in front of the pilot like it should be but they had the standby attitude indicator down here and uh, that turned out to cost an airplane and that was the uh, St. Martin uh, Carnahan uh, incident where they had a 
problem. Uh, I'm not sure what happened, but the, something happened so that the airplane went into a turn, but the ADI did not indicate that it was in a turn, the, uh, the attitude indicator. And so uh, the airplane just went like that at Mach 3, and then, and then it's gone because it, it just disintegrated. So they moved the, the standby indicator to uh, right on top of the main ADI so that if one, you could see them together. And if, if one was cocked off, then you knew to look around and see what's going on. It's fine, the airplane, especially at night, and this was at night, the, the, uh, the, the Carnahan. Flying at night, you have no reference. You know, stars look like uh, lights on the ground. And there's no reference if you can't see the horizon. So it's just like flying in a, in a big sphere of light. So you need that. So uh, Tom Tilden was a big uh, uh, mover to get a laser attitude warning system. So the later airplanes, uh, starting about 85 or so, we had a laser projector on the right uh, console that would project a laser line over the uh, cockpit, over the instrument panel, independent uh, gyros. And so it mimicked, and you could change the uh, illumination, whether it's bright or dim, uh, and you could change the position of it. Because one thing we found out is as a laser goes over a, a switch that, uh, maybe the paints off of it. Oh gosh, a big flash. So you can turn this thing down a little bit. It was never meant to be an attitude indicator, but only an indication that something is wrong. So if you're flying along and your attitude indicator looks okay, but then you see this laser going like that, that's another cue. So you need, you need cues about something about going out of control as soon as you can get them. And this laser was one that, that would do that. So that was one. The other thing is that we put a four inch standby ADI on top of the regular. So now you've got a big ADI, you've got two big ADIs, <laughs> one big and the other a little bit smaller, plus the laser. And all that, because we started flying at night a lot more. Uh, the powers that be wanted us to fly uh, the uh, North Korean uh, sorties at night. Just sticking with that, um, the ergonomics, just for a minute, then, because I think we'll we'll talk about the operational missions probably in in, in our next interview, which you haven't agreed to yet, but we're gonna, definitely going to have to have it because this one, this is just going way over in time. Um, so, so the TDI was that an innovation? Uh, that triple display indicator. What what were the three things it was showing you? Why was what, what you know why, what was special about TDI? Altitude, Mach, and um knots of equivalent airspeed. Uh, they were all supposedly without error. And uh, they had their own little special computer, and I, I never knew one to malfunction. But uh, looking at your airspeed indicator is worthless at 80,000 feet because uh, if you ever have your uh, flight computer, handheld flight computer, and looked on the back, the F tables, well, the F tables are for high altitude flight, and they're off the chart. So you could have an indicated airspeed of uh, 500 knots, but your dynamic pressure is really only 320. See, so you, you can't look at your indicated airspeed. And there's no direct reading of, of uh, you'd have to have another checklist to go, well, what's my indicated and what's my equivalent? So they just built a thing through engineering. I was talking to Kelly Johnson one time. I had the privilege of talking to him twice. And 
I asked him a technical question about the SR-71 and his answer, I think, to get rid of the pest was, it's engineering. <laughs> it's engineering. <laughs> so I just say the same thing. It's engineering. That's how you did it. If, if I ask you a question and, and you that's how you respond, I now know that uh, you're trying to get rid of me. Okay. <laughs> um, he was a wonderful man. I, he, he came down to our reunions and uh, he spoke uh, to us several times. And I just, gosh, he, what a what a man he was. And you, you probably know a lot about him, don't you? Well, I, re- I read his uh, his autobiography and Ben Riches, uh, and of course, I've you know I've I've sort of spoken to a few people who met him, but um, I, I would, you know, I would love to have interviewed him. I would have been. Did he Did he fly the SR, do you know? I think he had one flight in. He had one ride in, yeah. Yeah. That, that was what but I was going to ask. Yeah, there, there's a, on the, in the, in the, um, on the internet, there, if you Google SR-71 crew members or something, you see a list of all the crew members who have ever flown the SR-71 and the VIPs, they say, and his name isn't on the list. And it's always kind of, I'd heard that he did. And there's a picture of him in the cockpit with a, a, a face mask on. I don't think he flew, you know, at Mach three, but he, I think he flew in the pattern, something like that. Uh, so automation-wise, then the spikes, the inlets uh, have uh, an automated element to them. Um, You've mentioned an autopilot that doesn't hold altitude, but you can set an attitude in. Um, what, what other pilot relief systems are there, and um, what, what else did they put in to make the airplane as sort of um, less stressful as possible for you to, to fly. That's about it. That's about <laughs> I don't know. No. It was, so, the airplane, I can tell you, the, the, my, I studied my physiological reaction to the airplane, and I came to a, a conclusion, and I'm sure it's 100% correct. Would you like to hear it? Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, sometimes we would fly long missions, you know, three or four refuelings. The longest I ever flew was five refuelings. That was 10 and a half hours. That is a tough job. It is to be, I mean, five refuelings, 10 and a half hours. And you have to be aware of everything that's going on the whole time. So it is mentally exhausting. Sitting in a, in a, it is a rather comfortable chair, but being strapped into any chair for 10 and a half hours is not going to be comfortable. But it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, my muscles weren't tired. It was just, I was tired. Well, what I realized, oh, okay, another thing is the, the symptom. I come down from a flight like that and I'm dead tired. What do I want to do? I, I like to lie down and go to sleep. I lie down, I can't go to sleep. I'm too wired. I'm just, I can't, I'm just, uh-huh. so what I would do is, is go for a walk and I'd walk for two to three hours fast and that, that would be enough. Um, and then I realized what happened is that every time there was hiccup, anything that was going on, I could feel a shot of adrenaline. Have you ever felt that adrenaline? It's like, oh gosh. Oh gosh. So at the end of 10 hours, I have no more adrenaline. It's all been shot in my body. So I'm wired up with adrenaline. So it is. And there's no other way to do that on the ground. And that's, and so I'm sure that's what it was. And uh, so I, I knew then that it, at the end of a long flight, I say long flight, three refuelings or more, we usually count them by the number of uh, hot legs and refuelings. Um, then I just uh, just walked and, and dissipated that. And it was okay. 
Did um, so we we talked in the last interview about the effects of ox- breathing oxygen for a long time. You you said you know it sort of dries out your ear and uh, can can give you a bit of a, of earache. Um, what about the bends then? Is that something that ever affected you or or, or a crew that you were aware of? It, it affected me in the U two one time. I, I wore it in the A model. Um, I wore a partial pressure suit which is a, um, it's a torture device is what it is. Uh, you've seen, seen those where that you see this, the tube running down the side and, and it, instead of um, protecting your body with uh, increased air pressure, it uh, protects your body by increased material pressure. It, it squeezes on your body. Well, every time I flew the U2 at, at high altitude, which is most of the time, I would come down and have a blood vessel broken right in my elbow because you have to move the elbow and this thing, it was just uncomfortable. And I did feel the bends one time. The bends are the scratchy feeling and everything. Uh, and we didn't fly that high in U2, 70,000 feet. But I mean, you're, if you're at 45,000 feet, you can get the bends. Um, I came back and reported the flight surgeon and um, I was okay. So it just, it just went away but not in the SR. Now, we had one, one crew member who was uh, in his upgrading. he just come from the simulator, and it was like his first or second flight in the airplane. And uh, he didn't properly uh, fasten his faceplate. So it's halfway open. And, you know, that, oh, the other thing is that the SR-71 was not pressurized at 10,000 feet. Uh, it was pressurized at 26,000 feet at high altitude. So you're flying at 26,000 ambient in the cockpit. Well, guess what happens at 26,000 feet if you're not breathing oxygen? <laughs> you get hypoxic. So he got hypoxic, and that's the only physiological incident that I know of. Uh, he uh, he was flying, he was in the front seat, and the IP was in the back, and the IP talked to him and didn't get an answer, and, you know, that's kind of alarming. So <laughs> he shouted at him, and the other guy, oh, I'm okay. <laughs> so the IP <laughs> took the airplane and descended and came back subsonic. By the time he got down to 10,000 or so, he was okay. But that was that was worth a few drinks in the bar, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I, do, I do wonder, obviously you can't answer this question directly, but maybe you can r- relate the, the stories that you've been told. But what the experience was like in the back seat then, because not only are they not in control, but the um, the RSO had these tiny little windows, didn't they? You know, I, I've heard on, on the Canberra and the you know, the PR nine, they, they used to call them day night indicators. I don't know if they do, if they did the same in the in the SR community, but that's all they were really good for. Um, and and things like unstarts and uh, you know, sort of the the violence of that, how that worked, especially if you're sort of you know you're you're, you're busy doing your job. And then suddenly there's this terrifically violent event and, and what that must do to your nerves. Yes. Well, they, uh, they definitely had the harder of the, the more difficult of the two missions. I think I, all I had to do was fly the airplane and it, it was, I mean, it was enough to do that, but he had to uh, talk on the radio, run the checklist, run the sensors, run the defensive systems, make HF reports. He had VHF, UHF, VA, and HF. He had to make HF reports on operational missions. And um, he had to, and running the checklist is not, I mean, running the checklist, that's not a trivial exercise. He had to know the checklist. Uh, he had to know uh, 
he had to tell me where every circuit breaker was if I didn't know it myself. Um, and like Jay Reed was was right there. I mean, you know, if I had a oh, I'd say it was a couple of generators, um, and I had a oh, I had a TDI go out one time, and um, you know, until Jacob circuit breaker, you know, circuit breaker pop, gee, write that up. So he, he had to, he had to know everything, and, and 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 running the checklist and putting up with a pilot probably is a, is a is a big one too. Because, you know, I'm in charge. I'm the aircraft commander. Yes, but <laughs> I don't do anything without him. And I can't run the checklist myself. I mean, I can't fly the airplane. You know, the first rule is fly the airplane. And, you know, when you're at Mach 3, one degree, you know what one degree of pitch will give you? 3,000 foot per minute rate of climb. Well, one degree or decent. Right. Yeah, so, you know. What's your turn circle? What's what's the turn circle at uh, uh, Mark III? A little under two hundred miles, if you're fifty degree. It's one hundred and eighty oh. miles, I think. That that's the diameter of the circle, yeah. And it takes a while because you, you you go into a thirty degree bank turn and nothing happens on the on the compass. It just goes. Oh, okay. Now I think I'll start turning a little bit. That's the impression I get. Well, when I asked you about sort of um, pilot aids. Uh, and and you said well that was pretty much it. What I was wondering was whether the astro inertial navigation system sort of counted as a, a pilot's aid or or, or oh, maybe yes. not. Absolutely, no. That was well, yeah. That's that would that would it was advertised to get us over a point within a quarter of a mile, which I, it's hard to believe even now. I never saw it. Uh, yeah, I did see it fail a couple of times, but on an operational mission, for instance, we. Um, the Soviet Union claimed 100 miles, and uh, international norm is 12 miles. We literally flew at 12 and a half miles from the Soviet Union, and we did it in a 30 degree bank turn. Go uh, directly for the land mass, make a turn, and scoot the uh, thing by, by uh, 12 and a half miles. Now, the disconcerting thing, you know, we, we could not, by treaty, I guess, certainly by military order, we couldn't... Um, overfly the Soviet Union. Anyway, we were going to do what we're told to do. But it was kind of funny because when we go in that turn, the Soviet Union looks like it's below me because the chi- the, uh, the, the the nose is out there. And so I, I see the Soviet Union coming up here and then it goes below and then it says turn, you know. And so that that, uh, that turn is, is automated? The airplane's doing that or you're doing it? It's automated, but it's uh, manually watched. I can tell you a story about that. A short one. Um, in the SR community, no one, I don't believe, was the crew chief, maintenance people, uh, the people who exploited the uh, deal, the people who photographed or who uh, took care of the photographs were adverse to talking to us. They, they, they all. I, and I got feedback from one of the uh, photo interpreters that my pictures, this was early on, I was very, very uh, new in the system, that my pictures seemed to be a little fuzzy. And the others weren't. <laughs> well, oh, okay. Well, see what I, the flight manual says that when you're in the take area, then you the it has to be on autopilot. You know, I because they don't. There's too much to do to make sure that you stay on the black line and monitor everything. So I took that to mean let the autopilot do it. 
Well, that's not what it means. <laughs> it means you let the autopilot make the initial bank angle. And when that bank angle is set, put your hand on the stick and don't let it wobble. That's what it meant. <laughs> so the photo interpreter told me that, and I, I thanked him very much. I don't want my pictures to be fuzzy. <laughs> Just little things like that. I mean, there's, there's, gosh, lots of stories like that. You mentioned the black line. You, you did have... So a moving map then? A moving map. It was not electronic. I mean, it was all, I mean, it was electronic in that it had servos that followed what our true airspeed was. Again, engineering. <laughs> but it, it didn't have, it was it somebody, it was a map that somebody made. It was our, our, uh, the people who prepared our missions for us, and they did, gave us the map, and that was part of the deal was, uh, they they gave us a map to carry. Then this map they loaded in. Now you, I could I could slew it, slave it. I could change the position of the map relative to me, and sometimes I had to because it didn't keep up or got too too fast. But I always had centered where I was, and I always knew the next action point, whether it was a sensor coming on or turn. And part of our mission planning was to know where our abort bases were, because you, know, you don't may not have time to fool around. Like when I landed at Bodo, there wasn't any question about where we were, or Buddha, I'm sorry. There wasn't any question where we were going when we had that problem. Immediately, both Jay and I knew where we were going. Um, it was important to have all that stuff down. And the map really helped because it, it, it had on the map all of the information that I needed for the, uh, for the operational mission. Uh, left, right, wise didn't tell me what altitude to go but it told me everything when the next point was the degree of bank and so forth and we would every going that fast every turn uh the rso would count down you know five four three two and the word index and it turned index uh, and there it goes so we'll we'll talk about that sort of mission planning process then i think in, the, in our next in our next conversation but to, for the moment can you briefly describe how the astro-inertial navigation system worked? Well, I can't get to a lot of details, but it tracked stars. If you look at the top of it, it had a glass window, and that was right uh, by the air refueling probe or the, the, the receptacle. And the glass window, if you look in it, it looked like uh, the uh, telescope at Mount Palomar, one of those that had a little thing, and it could swivel around. And there was a sensor in here. And believe me, I don't know how this works, but it was miraculous. Uh, on the ground, even if it were cloudy a little bit, not overcast, and, and, and uh, no, no matter what the time, night or day, high noon or midnight, it knew because the, we, <laughs> let me back up, the RSO set the position where we were, and we had... Uh, places on the field where we operated that were known to, you know, to the inch where we were uh, longitude and latitude wise. So he would set that in. And then from that point on, when you turn the system to navigate, it would search for stars. And it had a catalog of like 24 or so stars, maybe more. And it, and if you locked on three stars, then you would get a starlight. And the starlight was the, was the big key. 
uh, once you got a starlight, then the system would automatically update its position as well as torque the platform. Because as you're going real fast and you're going around the earth, you know, that my longest mission was California to Murmansk, Soviet Union back. Well, that's, that's a quarter of the earth without. So a, a gyro would try to stay nice and level with itself, but this thing would actually torque the platform. It was good. And when it worked, it was, you know, within a quarter of a mile, as far as I know. And, and presumably once it was, it had found your location, that was it. You, you didn't have to do anything else with it. It just did its thing. Now, I, I did know how to operate it because I was an instructor pilot, and in the back seat of the B model was the, the nav system. Well, the, it's pretty important to stay on your track, even in a, in a uh, tra- training sortie over the United States, because the last thing you want to do is start, you know, booming Des Boyne or something, and then getting all of these, because it, it, it's loud. That thing is loud. Um, we would have to modify our track sometimes because of people calling in. Complaining about the sonic boom, so it was very important to stay on your track. And uh, you know, if you were a guy who likes to disobey orders or something, or go off the track or anything, that not that's not the program for you. <laughs>